Welcome to the late breaking news with Dr. Choppa Clinical Pearls. Oh, that was so cheesy. I didn't want to do this, guys, at all. They made me do it. <laughs> oh, my God. You got to love this team. All right. I told you we're bringing you the hot, breaking, brand new news as it comes out. We're going to do that in this episode. All right, podcast family, I told you that we were going to let you know when ACOG responds to the ACIP's recommendation for RSV vaccination in pregnancy. My goodness, we've been covering this thing since the RSV vaccine got FDA approved, and I feel like I'm all RSV'd out. I mean, my goodness, I went through COVID fatigue with those vaccines and all the COVID info that we put out. But our job here at Clinical Pearls is to let you know right hot off the press what's going on. So ACOG has now released its practice advisory on maternal respiratory syncytial virus vaccination. And if you remember in our podcast not long ago, which was ACOG's little blurb, the press release that, hey, we're not we're on the same team as CDC and ACIP and we're going to fall in line. We agree this is a big issue. And yes, pregnant women should get it. But more clinical guidance is coming. Well, that clinical guidance is here. <laughs> All right. So I tell you, man, things move really fast. And remember in that previous podcast, I said, I wonder what they're going to talk about with the preterm labor. Can they co-administer these? Um, how long does it take for uh, maternal uh, antibody levels to rise and then pass to the child? And what about this new FDA-approved medication, uh, new antibody vaccine for the infant? Uh, where does that fit in? Well, all of that is answered in the practice advisory. So, to continue our mini soap opera on As RSV World Turns, let's cover the practice advisory that was just released from the college considering vaccination for RSV in pregnancy. Just trying to keep everyone up to date on evidence-based practice because medicine moves real fast. This is Clinical Pearls. Oh, good Lord. We're not going to go into the RSV trial data and all of that because we already did that. I mean, we've covered all that info. Really, what I want to uh, touch base on now is, of course, ACOG's stance on this. Yes, they approve of ACAP recommendation between 32 and 36 weeks. But now we're going to get into just some of the fine details on this. Remember, this is Pfizer's RSV pre-F vaccine. The trade name of this vaccine is Abrizvo. Okay, that's Abrizvo, A-B-R-Y-S-V-O, Abrizvo. Well, figure that. Remember that this is approved from 32 weeks and zero days all the way until 36 weeks and six days. The RSV season in the United States is basically in the fall, all right? That's from September through January. So remember that influenza season is 10 and 5, 10 and 5, right? So the flu, 10 and 5. October, all the way actually until May, it just happens that there's a clustering, obviously, in late fall and early winter, okay? So the flu, 10-5, but RSV is a little bit more restricted from September through January. Remember, of course, that this really isn't for the fetus. This is for the neonate. This is in order for the mother to make antibodies that pass 
to the child to give the baby that newborn protection. All right, it's the same thing for pertussis. We give Tdap not necessarily for the mom, although getting tetanus and a diphtheria booster is good. It's really for that that pertussis immunological response that then goes directly in utero to protect the child. Now, patients should also be made aware of that there is a newborn option, which is a monoclonal antibody vaccine that's given to the child. So it's it's not that if they don't get this vaccine, baby's going to be at risk. There's just nothing else. That That's not the case. This new monoclonal antibody for the child is also an option. This vaccine for the child is approved by the FDA and recommended by the CDC as one dose for all infants younger than eight months of age who are born or entering their first RSV season, all right? So they're going to deliver between that critical interval from September through January and the babies are younger than eight months, then that is who the CDC recommends gets this monoclonal antibody that's a long-acting vaccine. Now, ACOG and the CDC also remind us that for some children between the ages of 18 and 19 months who are still at increased risk of severe RSV vaccine, like children who have some sort of severe immunocompromised condition, that they receive this dose as well in the second season. So ideally, it's given in their first RSV season for all infants younger than age eight or in those that are immunocompromised. You can extend that from eight months to 19 months and extend that to their second RSV season. Remember that this monoclonal vaccine for the neonate is called Bayfortis. And again, we covered that in the RSV FDA approval episode. So you got to go back and listen to that if you want to know that information. But again, it's a monoclonal antibody product given to protect the neonate, and that's called Bayfortis. All right, so ACOG does address this issue of one or the other, okay? Maternal vaccination or neonatal vaccination. Here's what ACOG says, quote, most newborns and infants will not need both maternal vaccination and monoclonal antibody administration. However, because the earliest time of vaccination is 32 weeks and it takes at least 14 days, so two weeks, guys, that's needed from the time of maternal antibody development to transplacental passage to protect a child, infants born at less than 34 weeks should receive the monoclonal antibody vaccine regardless of maternal vaccination status, okay? End quote. So everybody makes sense? So if you give that at 32 weeks, boom, mom goes into preterm labor, delivers two weeks later. There's there's just no protection there. So even if she got the vaccine, and especially, of course, if she didn't get it, then it's recommended that those children receive the monoclonal vaccine to protect them against RSV, all right? So the first question is, how long does it take to get an antibody response to RSV to pass in utero to protect the child? That is two weeks. ACOG continues to say, quote, in very rare situations, infants born to mothers who were vaccinated at least 14 days before birth may receive this monoclonal antibody based on the clinical judgment of their healthcare professional, end quote. So the question is, if mom got the vaccine and baby delivered greater than two weeks, do they still need to get Bayfortis? Well, that's a case by case. That's an individual preference issue, but at least they need one form of protection. It's fine to get both, but it's 
it's one or the other, basically, uh, as that's accepted practice, although they can obviously choose to have both. ACOG does actually bring up something that's very important for patient information, all right? When the patient goes, oh, I don't know, can't decide, should I get the RSV vaccine or wait for the baby to get it? Well, hopefully they pick at least one. But here's an interesting note based on the data, and it's in this ACOG practice advisory, that the protection from the monoclonal antibody, in other words, the protection from the newborn vaccine, may actually last longer than maternal vaccination, okay? So while both definitely have a role, giving the baby the monoclonal antibody directly as direct passive immunity kind of sounds like it would last a little bit more like active immunity, like it would make its own antibody with active infection, because you're not relying on the maternal immune response, all right? So, so yes, we, we get that. It's not active immunization by, uh, by a virus particle. Um, but, but just to clarify, it does have this potential benefit of giving the baby directly the monoclonal antibody can be in his body uh, a little bit longer. And it's thought, that, it's thought to mimic active immunity. Okay, so that's my personal preference, right? So if a patient's going to ask me, well, what would you do? And my answer is always, well, I want, I would do whatever you're comfortable with because you decide. Again, just my opinion. I think it's better if you give the child, if you give the subject directly the protection than relying on somebody else's protection to pass it like a secondary, like a mediator, all right? So both have a role, but just in my opinion, better that the child have the, the own immunity dump than relying on, on the maternal immune response. So I, I, I kind of like this part here. Thankfully, again, as I mentioned in, in our previous podcast, it's not like mom's vaccination is the only way to protect the child because now we can protect the child after birth. So I kind of like that protection after the delivery on that side of the partition. But once again, these are just options. And that's why we, we offer shared decision making. Look, mom, you can get the vaccine or you can give the baby the vaccine or you can do both. Probably not necessary to do both, but knock yourself out. But if you're asking me personally, this is just Choppa here, not, not ACOG. Uh, I, I like the, the baby to make their own immune response because it does seem to have more longevity than you making it for the child. In terms of safety, we have to talk about two things. General safety of this RSV vaccine, according to the college and the CDC and ACIP, and this whole issue of preterm birth, all right? So let's talk about that quickly. So the first thing is general safety. Well, of course, you know that's there because it, they would never have approved it if, if there's some kind of fetal concern. So that seems to be okay. This does seem to be safe and effective, according to the college, quote, to prevent severe lower respiratory tract infections caused by RSV. RSV in infants through age six months, end quote. All right. So this isn't like lifelong immunity. They're like, hey, if the baby gets this thing early on, then baby should be covered for the first six months. Remember, we're trying to protect them for their first RSV season or their second RSV season if they've got some sort of immunocompromised issue going on. All right, let's keep moving on because we had some unanswered questions in our previous episode. One had to do with co-administration with other vaccines and then the preterm birth, little bump in preterm birth according to the original uh, Pfizer data. Okay, so let's talk about first co-administration with other maternal vaccines. ACOG states that, quote, maternal RSV vaccines can be administered at the same time as other vaccines routinely recommended during pregnancy. 
end quote, right? So that's it, that yes, you can do it. I know we went through the data of maybe decreasing the immunogenicity of pertussis if given with Tdap. Uh, to me, I don't see why you'd have to give these together. I mean, you can space them out unless you're concerned about the patient not coming in just to make sure that they're separate and both make their own immune response. But the CDC stance, the company line, and the ACIP guidance and ACOGS is, hey, just go ahead and co-administer. It seems to be just fine. All right. And the big issue that people were worried about is what about the slight bump, the quote, numerical imbalance, end quote, is what the trial called it, the numerical imbalance in preterm birth in the Abrizvo recipients and those who received the maternal RSV vaccine, that was 5.7% compared to those who received placebo at 4.7%. Now, first of all, if you're thinking, oh, wait a minute, is that what we're worried about? 5.7 over 4.7? Yeah, I know it doesn't sound like a lot, but remember, when we don't have anything to prevent preterm birth, and we already remember the U.S., so for those in the international audience, let me give you something I'm a little ashamed about. Uh, The U.S. received uh, a D-plus, all right, on preterm births, uh, uh, not for management, we know what to do with it, but just for their occurrence. Uh, And then, of course, we lost progesterone. So we've got to do something here for preterm births. So any number that's going up is just not good. But thankfully, it wasn't twice. It wasn't 8%. That'd be a no. But it was 5.7 over the placebo, 4.7, all right? Well, ACOG states and does remind us something that I talked about in, in the other podcast episode as well. I think I did was that those that number that quote numerical imbalance end quote in preterm birth uh, occurrences actually happened in the participants that were in low to middle income countries. You're like, what does it have to do with anything? Well, a lot. It has to do with socioeconomic status, social pressures, nutrition deficiencies, uh, access to care. Do y'all get this right? So there's a lot of factors. There. So again, if you're asked, what about the RSV uh, preterm birth data? Yes, it, it was a numerical imbalance. It was like 1% higher, uh, which doesn't sound like a lot, but it's something we can't ignore. But those were in participants residing in low to middle income countries. And it's unclear if that was just an environmental issue because there wasn't enough data. Here it is, guys, quote, to establish a casual relationship between preterm birth and as Brizvo, end quote. So ACOG says, yes, we know it, I get it. But as of right now, we just cannot say that it's a true causative association. And so that's why ACOG said, let's just push that a little bit further to 32 to 36 weeks and six days so that if there is any kind of occurrence, at least we're in that later half of the third trimester. Hey, podcast family, just a quick clarification. On Thursday, September the 28th, I did a clarification on this episode because one of our podcast family members did remind me that at times my lips are faster than my neurons. So absolutely, Bayfortis is passive immunity because it's monoclonal antibody. But because it's being deposited directly into the child, not dependent on the maternal response, what I was meaning to say is that it should last like active immunity. But please listen to that update that immediately follows this episode from Thursday the 28th to get that full information. So Katie, thank you once again. Well, podcast family, how's that for living true to our mission of trying to keep you up to date on evidence-based practice because medicine moves fast? 
I held to the commitment. I tell you guys, I kept on looking for this thing. I'm like, team, we've got to get this thing together. Meanwhile, things like patient care, you know, got to see my family. I had the EMR records to do. Uh, I had a QI project in the afternoon with the residents. It's, <laughs> there's always something, but we still got this out uh, today. I wanted to get it on the morning, but that didn't happen. So anyway, uh, we got this out on Wednesday afternoon. What's the day? 27th? I think it's the 27th. Yes, it's the 27th. All right, podcast family, we have made our commitment to wrap this thing up. We've gone from RSV FDA approval to the ACIP recommendation to ACOG's press release, and now it's practice advisory and clinical guidance. Hope you found this helpful as always. We're thankful for you. We're glad you're part of Clinical Pearls, and we'll see you on another episode.